know, one of the things that we've been seeing take place a lot in the news is the Asbury Revival. That's something that has been hot on everybody's lips uh, for a while. In fact, not too long ago, I got a, a text from a former pastor here at Grace Covenant Church, Mark Killam. Um, as I believe he's texted some of you, he's right there on the ground and was active in that Asbury Revival and a part of it. And so he's been giving us various updates. And of course, we've, we found that the, the university now is trying to transition this and they're ultimately hoping and praying that it spreads. Now, there's been all kinds of arguments about what this is and what's going on. Most of the people I've talked to have been there more on the ground and people in the area that I've trusted have said that this genuinely appeals, appears to be a sweet movement of God. Now, whether this will turn into a quote unquote revival um, then that's, we'll have to wait and see. That, that comes, the, the true test of that is gonna come not from the experience that has taken place, whether or not that was from God, um, but rather um, from the fruit of it later on. And so we'll just see what happens in that. But regardless of what it is, what it ends up becoming, one of the things that we can see is there is a genuine movement of God. And one of the things that, that is noticed and people have observed is it hasn't been an act of sensationalism. And in other words, it hasn't been an act of uh, incredible just people acting crazy or doing crazy things. In fact, there was an atheist journalist who went there and one of the things that she observed was not any kind of, you know, kind of emotional manipulation. In fact, she said there was nothing in that, but rather the fact she was observing that people were acting strange and the standpoint of what they were looking to do seems so good and so wholesome. Not sensational, but just good. And it made her look at her own things that she and her friends like to do for fun and, and outside of work. And she compared them and thought, hmm, this is, there's something to this, there's something different. And in fact, as people have talked, they've even noticed that in certain parts of it, if you're watching online, it can almost be downright boring. But yet, there's this undeniable move of God. Not of an emotional sensationalism, but what does it look like? Well, one of the common characteristics that, that I have seen, as people have reported on this, is that people are confessing sin. They're confessing sin and turning to God. They're confessing sin and turning to God. It's not sensationalistic, it's not crazy, and yet it's profound. It is both corporate in nature in the standpoint that you find this movement of God is affecting so many people, but yet at the same time, deeply personal and individualistic. It's a both and. People are confessing their own sins, but yet you're seeing God move throughout the group, coming together, and the response, the response to this common confession and turning to God is what? Worship. People coming together and worshiping and finding joy and change in the living God. Confession of sin. We often talk in our Christian circles about what would it look like for God to move in our churches and in our universities and in our society. A lot of times we want to look at that as some large political movement that may take place. But the truth is what we see there at Asbury, whether this, despite, regardless of what this ends up becoming and what historians end up writing about this or whether they even end up writing about it at all, is what we see in that is people turning to God in confession, dealing with the real problems of sin in their hearts and in their lives, turning to him and responding to the joy of the good news of Jesus Christ in worship. This isn't just something that we see in modern day revivals. It's not something that we just see in um, if we were to study the Great Awakenings in history, the Protestant Reformation, but it's even something that we see throughout 
history as we look at God's word. And we see a very poignant example of that here in 1 Samuel chapter 7. In many ways, what we see is a revival breaking out in Israel. And what we've seen is a revival has certainly been needed in Israel. We've seen that there is corrupt teaching in the form of Eli, the priest, and his sons. And we've acknowledged that if we were to look at the book that would go historically right before this and, and show us the setting and the state of Israel, which is the book of Judges, the people were in desperate need of a revival. There is, there, and, and, and the fruit of their sinfulness was a, it was a community that is filled with chaos. A community filled with brokenness. And ultimately a people that is under the thumb of oppressors, namely the Philistines. Last week we saw that God broke in unilaterally as the Philistines had taken the ark and God revealed his glory and his power not through an individual but just simply through the revelation of his power as he broke the Philistine armies and broke the Philistine community in a way that showed his supremacy and his glory. One of the things that we've seen throughout as God has revealed his glory is people have not been able to stand in his glory is revealed and highlighted the human sinfulness within our hearts. And one of the great tragedies that we've seen as we've looked at 1 Samuel is in response to God's glory, in response to the heaviness that comes with his glory, rather than turning to him in repentance, rather than, than examining their lives, what they wanted to do is simply get that out of their way. And so we see even as the Philistines are saying, and they're dealing with the reality of who God is and how much he is greater than their, their pagan gods, uh, Dagon, they just want to get rid of the ark. And then even more tragically, as the ark goes to a Levite town in Israel, the people there, rather than showing reverence and weight of God's glory, they show irreverence rather than dealing with their own sin, seeking change. What do they do? They just, they just want to pass off the ark somewhere else. Okay, let's deal with this problem by just not having to deal with it. Let's make it somebody else's problem. So that's where we pick up in chapter 7, verse 1. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim come, and they took the ark of the Lord, and they brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eleazar, to have charge of the ark of God. And from that day, the ark was lodged in Kiriath-Jerim a long time past, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And so what we see is the ark is now moved into this new town. We don't really know much about this town, nor do we know much about this, what was most likely some sort of priestly family that took charge of it. And to, to take charge of it means, is in essence, to, uh, the word is quite literally to keep it. Whether that is to keep it in the standpoint of protecting it, but that could also be the same word used for um, essentially maintaining it kind of fulfilling the priestly duties that were required for the ark. Now, what's interesting is they didn't take it back to Shiloh, most likely, as I said previously, because the Shiloh was, was probably destroyed, almost certainly destroyed by the Philistines. And so they don't erect a makeshift um, tabernacle. It's kept in this place, and it will stay in this place until David will bring it into Jerusalem, which he will establish as his new capital of the kingdom. But until that time, it's going to stay in this town. Now, it says that 20 years have passed. Now, there's a lot of debate as what does that mean? Is that 20 years until the ark gets moved? I don't believe that's what it means, though there are some commentators who take that. I think the more natural reading of the text and what makes far more sense is there's 20 years between verse 2 and verse 3. And in these 20 years between what has taken place with the ark moving to Kiriah, uh, Kiriah Jerem, 
And what we're about to find when the people are crying, become crying out to the Lord to Samuel, and Samuel directs their place of repentance, which we'll get to in a moment, is in the standpoint of 20 years. So in this time, what you see is God has revealed his glory in powerful ways. He has revealed himself in beautiful, wonderful ways. And a key thing that we're going to see here is what? The all of Israel was lamenting after the Lord. They were lamenting after the Lord. So there was a sense in which God had broken them and was working in their hearts to continue to break them. But this was a slow, slow process, one taking ultimately 20 years. God is ever so patient and kind. We get very impatient, but God is not. He is committed to doing his work. And so what we see is the people were repenting. And then we find in verse 3, Samuel is now reintroduced. He's been out for a while now. We haven't seen him since chapter 3, I believe it was. And Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asheroth, from among you and direct your heart into the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines so the people of Israel put away the bells and the ashtaroths and they served the Lord only you see what is Samuel doing he's saying that's good that you're lamenting that's good that you're recognizing the brokenness but it's not enough your emotional state of lament is not enough. If you want to have true repentance, as this is indeed a repentance with all your heart, he's going to give them three imperatives. Three imperatives that he's giving them. Now, first thing, the other thing I should note is it says, if you are returning, that's the Hebrew word shav. Am I pronouncing that right? No way. Not even close. But that is the common word that is often used in the Old Testament for repentance. Return. In other words, it is a turning away. So if what you're doing is genuine repentance, it's not just enough to lament. It's not enough to have an emotional experience of worship. True repentance is something else. And so what is the first imperative? Or the, well, the first thing it says... We should notice with all your heart. In other words, this isn't half-hearted. This is a whole turning to God. And he says, then you will, first imperative, you will put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroths. What have we seen continually? What we have seen in both the book of Judges and even in 1 Samuel so far is the, the people have adopted, sometimes syncretistically, the, the gods of the Canaanites. And what do I mean? What is that fancy word syncretistically? So a lot of times what they do is they'll bring in, they'll worship Yahweh. They'll continue to recognize Yahweh as their God. But in addition to worshiping Yahweh, they will worship particularly the god Baal. And that was the most popular uh, god. And so we see that that was certainly one of the ones. But essentially it's all foreign gods. Now, it specifically says all forms God and the Ostaroths. Now, who was Ostaroth? That was another part of the Canaanite pantheon of gods, typically associated with Baal. It was a female goddess that was typically identified as Baal's consort. Now, the other thing is what archaeologists have often found is in addition to that, in the syncretism, in other words, the combining of the polytheism of the day, what we have found is there was a lot of people that were, they were, they were claiming and they were identifying the God as Yahweh, but they were bringing in this pagan worship of Ashroth and saying that that was Yahweh's wife. Now, that wasn't widespread. That was in certain localized places. But what you saw is they were becoming influenced. Now, Baal was particularly... Um, well known within that area because God, Baal was the thundering God. He was the God of fertility. And so oftentimes in the, in the, uh, the way the Canaanite myth went is Baal was this great God. He was the, so in other words, what were they dependent on? They were dependent on rain. They were dependent on storms, the, the storms that would bring up uh, fertility for their crops, for their survival, for their economy. 
And so people had Baal as this great God who was in great battle with this God, Mot. And so Ma'at and Baal would fight and Mot would, would kill Baal. And that's when you would have winter. Everything would die. But then Baal would raise himself up. He would then uh, bring his thundering. He would war and he would defeat all. Uh, uh, ba, uh, defeat Mot, thus spring. And so people who are deeply dependent on agriculture and this God of fertility, they begin worshiping this Baal. Why? Because they're looking to say, hey, this is our most immediate need. This seems to be what everybody in the area says you need to do to have this security. You need to worship Baal. So you can worship Yahweh, but, you know, just cover your bases by worshiping Baal as well. And so what Samuel says, you've got to put all of that away. Get away from the syncretism. Get away from adding Yahweh plus something else. Some other place of trying to find security and trust him. Turn away from those gods. So that's the first imperative from among you. And that was very prevalent, as I said, as we, we, we see quite clearly. And here's the second imperative. Direct your heart to the Lord. And here's the third imperative. Serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So what in other words... So in other words, it's not just enough to recognize something's bad. It's not enough to just say, I'm going to stop doing this thing which is bad. There's also in the turning away from that which is bad and evil and idolatrous, there's the turning to the living God and serve or worshiping him. So in other words, it's not enough to be broken. It's not enough to be emotional. It's not enough to just say, I don't want to stop doing the bad things that I've been doing. I also turn and submit myself to the living God and serve the Lord. And what's the key word there? Only. Now, verse 5. And then Samuel said, Gather all the people at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So what is the result? The people, they are confessing their sins, but they're also, as they're turning to the Lord, what are they doing? God is gathering his people for worship. He gathers his people for worship. So gather all of Israel, and I will pray for you. And so they gathered at Mizpath and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted on that day. And they said there, notice their confession, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpath. And so what we see there, they're fasting and they're pouring out water. Now, we have absolutely no idea why they're pouring out the water. There's no Old Testament uh, uh, example of this. There's no Old Testament command. The best thing that scholars can say that most likely is going on is this is kind of a water fast. So in essence, what they're saying, along with their fasting, they're not trying to give some sort of magical formula to wake up God or convince them. This is a way for themselves to kind of almost enter into a very different posture before God of recognizing that God alone is that which we need. We are completely and utterly dependent upon God. Now, how is this different from their previous posture? Well, keep in mind, when the Philistines raged against them earlier, what did they do? They didn't bow before God. They didn't fast and declare, hey, God is the one we need. They said, hey, let's bring the ark out here. We'll, use, we'll, we'll manipulate God. We'll force God into doing what we want to do. God is, in essence, almost kind of obligated to fight for us because we're bringing out the ark. And this is recognizing God's not obligated before us. We're dependent upon him. And in doing so, what do they do? They confess their sins. And Samuel, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this, he becomes an intercessor, a true priest on their behalf, one who is praying before them. We're going to see more of that in a minute, and I'll talk more about that here. So they're confessing their sin. Now, what do we expect? Well, we expect everything to be great. Sunshine and roses. 
Let's do a happy dance. Let's sing kumbaya. What's the response? Verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel gathered at Mizpath, uh-oh, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So in some essence, as one Old Testament scholar, Bill Arnold, said, nothing's changed, and yet everything's changed. Nothing's changed in that they're still having to deal with this hostile force. Because they've turned to God, it didn't make all of a sudden everything that was hostile to them, that was causing them to sin, to just go away. In fact, in many ways, in response to what we were doing, we saw almost an increase in provocation from the Philistines. Isn't that interesting? It's almost as if the enemy wants to shut down what's going on. Why would God allow that? But notice what he said. They were afraid. They were afraid. Now what do we immediately want to do? We want to judge them, right? How dare you be afraid? Didn't you just confess your dependence on God? But notice what they do in their fear. Notice what they do. Verse 8, and the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. See, what is their response in their fear? It isn't trying to find some sort of relic. It isn't trying to look within themselves. What is their response? We need God. We need God. There's a recognition that there's an enemy out here that we cannot handle. This is beyond me. This is beyond us. So what do they do? They turn to the living God and say, we need God. So different. So different from the previous encounter. In the previous encounter, they weren't afraid. They said, we're going to go get the ark. We're going to use our own magic. We're going to use what we know, and we think we're going to be able to rally ourselves, and we're going to go beat them. Look at us. They're not saying, look at us now. They're, looking, they're saying, let's look to God. He and he alone is our hope. He alone will be our refuge. He alone will be our source. Now, is there fear in the midst of that? Yeah, there is. But that fear becomes the arena for God to reveal faith within them, to bring about faith within them, to change them. See, God brings us about because it becomes almost like a testing by which God reveals himself to him and shows them that he is all that they need. Not by taking away all the problems, not by taking away everything that was causing sin and, uh, in, in the community, but by showing himself to be bigger and superior than all of that. What do we see? We see Samuel then, he offers a sacrifice. In the midst of this coming army, he becomes once again an intercessor for the people. Now this is important because this is doing two things. One thing that, that all the people in Israel, whether they're reading, they're, they're seeing this and they're witnessing this in real time, whether they're people in exile reading this or first century Jews reading this, they're all going to see something right here. What Samuel is doing is he's becoming a type of Moses, a prophet that is interceding for the people. And we saw certainly that Samuel was the first one who was declared a prophet that was risen up since Moses. And so he is kind of a new Moses. 
But as Christians, we see something else taking place. We see a foreshadowing of the true high priest, which is to come, Jesus Christ. Because we see as he is offering, he is gives an offering for the intercession of the people. In the midst of their despair and their brokenness as the enemy has come upon him, he offers a whole burnt sacrifice. Jesus, the true high priest, offered the perfect whole sacrifice, which was himself on the cross for our sins. And becomes our high priest who intercedes on our behalf before the Father. Talk more about that in a minute. So there's both a looking back, but as Christians, we see a foreshadowing as well. There's acknowledging their need for God, but there's also not a presumption upon God, but the realization that what they need is grace. Verse 10. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. Now, don't the way he defeated them was very significant because what did they do? They put away their false gods of the Canaanites, specifically the god Baal. But what was the god Baal? The god of thunder, lightning, the god of the storm. So what God is doing, he's revealing to them, you have turned to the true God, not this false god Baal. You have turned to the true God who is victorious. And the men of, verse 11, then the men of Israel went out from this path and they pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below as Beth Car. And then Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mispath and Shin and called its name Ebenezer, where he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. Ebenezer. Now, where have we seen that? Now, the, the Hebrew name literally means stone of help, right? And so there, he's put this Ebenezer down, this monument to recognize that God has been their help. This victory is not because of anything we've done, but because of God. But do you recognize the significance of that name? Ebenezer. Where did we see that previously? We, see it, we saw it in chapter 5 in the defeat. What was the name of the town where Israel gathered and were ultimately destroyed before the Philistines because of their sin? Ebenezer. A place of shame. A place that declared their ultimate shame in victory because of their sin. Now, this is probably a different location becomes the place of declaration of their greatest hope, of their redemption, of God's grace, Ebenezer. Thus the great song, come thou fount, now I raise my Ebenezer, is that recognition. God has taken the defeat, the shame of defeat, and turned it into his place of victory for his glory. Was fascinating. Well, we'll keep on. And so the Philistines were subdued, and they did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. And there was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. And so what we see, if we were to study and we were to look at, was this repentance real? Yeah, what was the fruit of this repentance? We don't see Israel worshiping, at least we don't see any signs of it in the biblical text, of them worshiping Baal for almost 200 years. It's not until first kings with Ahab and Jezebel where once again we see that the people are worshiping Baal. But for what is almost 200 years, 
they were not worshiping Baal. They had put away the gods of the Canaanites. Now, what does this teach us? One of the things that we really need to understand is this. The path to peace, the path to peace, both as a culture, as a community, within our relationships, and ultimately with ourselves, the path to peace comes through true repentance. The path to peace, peace with one another, peace with God, peace with our very selves comes through true repentance. Now, our, our, our culture has a real squirrely view, a paradoxical view and understanding of sin and repentance because we don't really know what to do with it. We live in a world where we've divorced our morality from the divine. We've divorced it from transcendence. And so we've turned all of our morality into uh, something that is more cultural, something that is more individualized into this hyper-individualization. And so what that has meant means is we never want to call anything that a person does or says a choice sin. Well, if there's nothing that is sin, there's no real need for repentance, is there? Morality doesn't really exist in some ways. And, and ultimately, in this hyper-individualism, we, we don't even want, we, one of the big things we want to raise our kids to do is to, to uh, feel this great sense of uh, self-worth. And to do so, we never want to challenge our kids to be actual sinners, right? That seems like that's pretty bad parenting according to our world. So you would think that within this, all this rejection of morality, there would be no accusations of evil or calls for repentance, but that's absolutely not the case in our world, is it? It's certainly the case that we've removed morality from any sense of divine, but we actually live in a culture that is filled with outrage and calls for justice. We, feel, we live in a world that desperately is, is it, it can't live under the weight of, of the evil that is there without declaring that there is evil. We don't want to call it sometimes an evil that is defined by God. But the weight of this evil, we can't excuse. We can't sweep it under the rug. We demand its recognition, but the problem is, within that, we have a very murky and unstable view of morality. And so this really no longer becomes, we've developed this honor-shame culture within us where we want to shame, but because we don't have any shared sense of morality, it really becomes this tribal honor shame and so we participate within our tribes and what our tribe calls evil that's evil and we want to cry out against the other tribes and within that our ethics have become based more than our emotions or on trends and they become divorced from any transcendence that has left us very confused and deeply unsatisfied one of the main ways it's deeply confused and unsatisfied is because then we ask ourselves, where is a place for redemption? Where is a place for restoration? What we have to do is we have to simply hope that some of the things that we're for now are not going to become trendy to be evil five years from now. And who knows what that's going to be? J.K. Rowling, a great hero of feminism just 10 years ago, is now an evil uh, you know, author, because she's not down with the transphobe movement. Our heroes can very easily, with defined on what's trendy, can become our villains. So within this bizarre honor shame, there's no real agreement. But yet, the weight of the realization of evil demand, we find ourselves constantly calling against it. So what do we do? We try to rationalize our sin. We want to call out against it. We certainly have our virtue signaling. 
where we want to call that out, but that really becomes almost more like initiation rites to declare which tribe we're in. rather than seeking true change within us. It shows which tribe we're in because it shows what values we're part of. When we do have to deal with sin, we want to go to the therapeutic, that everything is somebody else's fault. So in other words, I get home and I'm angry and I begin taking my temper out on my family. Well, that's certainly an evil. My wife doesn't deserve that. My kids don't deserve that. So what is our typical response? Well, we'd have no place for redemption or restoration, no place for forgiveness. What do we do? Well, I'm really just angry because of the way my boss treated me, because of this jerk in traffic, because I heard something on the radio that triggered me. So rather than owning to our sin, we try to turn it into a way to make ourselves the victim. Why? Because we have no place for redemption. And so we do this to try to alleviate ourselves from the shame. But the problem is the shame doesn't go away. The shame doesn't go away at all. And despite our desired belief to try to detach ourselves from morality, that shame ever weighs upon us. It's lurking there in our anxieties our insecurities, and the ways that we try to numb ourselves through food and sex and entertainment. It's there. But in the midst of this, there is incredibly good news, incredibly good news. Because this, the reality of morality points us to a truly transcendent God. And so he and he alone is the one who sets the standards for what is good and what is evil. And so when we sin, yes, we sin against one another, we sin against creation, but ultimately we sin first and foremost against him. But because it's against him, he ultimately is the one who decides what does redemption and what does forgiveness look like? And this God of absolute justice and absolute morality and absolute goodness is also the God of peace, the God who has made a way for us to have peace with God, peace with the people around us, and ultimately peace with yourself. And that pathway to that peace is repentance through repentance. Ultimately, trusting not in what we have done, but what he has done. Colossians chapter two makes this great point. In Colossians chapter two, what we find is Jesus in the cross. He nailed our debt to the cross, fulfilling its demands, the demands of the debt we owe to the cross. And in doing so, he took our shame and ultimately took the enemy and made them, placed them in open shame. God took the shame that we deserve, the shame that we deserve for our mistakes, the shame we deserve for our mishaps, for our breaking this world and breaking ourselves our imprisonment to our sin. He took all of that shame upon himself in the most shameful death possible on the cross. He bore our shame. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness This doesn't mean that with repentance everything will magically become easy or the effects of sin will be gone. We can be confident in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. So what does this mean? How does this pathway of peace become ours through repentance? Well, first let's take a look at what repentance is not. What is true repentance and what is 
False repentance. And certainly there's a difference. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 makes a distinction between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. There's a difference between true repentance and the repentance of this world. And so here, what is... What it repentance is not. This is what repentance is not. First and foremost, repentance is not blaming somebody else. It is not telling the sins of others, so to speak. So in other words, as we sin, we're not, we're not trying to pass the buck. We're not trying to be argumentative. And we see an example of this here, future, in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel, uh, with Saul, King Saul, when he is confronted by the prophet Samuel for his sinfulness, he gets argumentative. He says, well, it's because you were late, Samuel. That's the reason I did what I did. He doesn't own his sin. He doesn't say, yeah, you know what? I messed up. He wants to pass the buck. He wants to say, well, yeah, maybe I did this, but here's the reason why. So I was turning ourselves into the victim. It's kind of a passive-aggressive form of repentance, and we do this all the time. Well, yeah, I did this, but you know, here's the reason why. Secondly, repentance is not simply acknowledging that what we did was wrong. It's not simply acknowledging that what we did is wrong. It has to go beyond that. So let me give you an example. Now, last night as I was thinking of illustrations, I was, I was thinking about an example of this. And what came to mind was a particularly egregious example of just bold sinfulness where I did something that I knew was absolutely wrong. I thought, okay, yeah, that's a pretty good example. But as I was working with this, one of the things I do is I'm kind of a stress eater, right? And one of the things I've been convicted on lately is how much I've been seeking to find uh, rest, to find satisfaction in food and ultimately not um, self-restraint, not self-control in, in other things like, hey, when I'm tired or when I'm stressed, I just want to solve it by eating rather than going to God in prayer. Or I want to solve it by just sitting down and vegging out on YouTube instead of resting in prayer and in, in in, in the knowledge of God. Now, that doesn't mean that eating and enjoying food is wrong, not in any shape, way, or form. And so this is something that God has been dealing in my heart. I'm not saying it's something that God is dealing with in your heart, okay? But it's something that, that has been particularly convicted on me. It's how much I've been seeking rest in food. So here I am, I'm thinking about this illustration, I'm, I'm, I'm a little stressed, so what do I do? I get up and I begin trying to raid the pantry. So I'm thinking about this, and, and, and I grab these chocolate-covered espresso beans, and they're great. I love them. And so I'm popping these. I'm sitting there thinking, and you're like, huh, you know, this is another example. Here, here I, you know, I've been feeling this need to kind of stay away from the snacking of responding to stress with snacking. I've been feeling like this is actually a little bit of a spiritual issue, not just a, uh, not just a discipline issue. And what I do when I'm, I'm thinking this, I pop in a few more. Uh, coffee, chocolate-covered coffee beans. Well, I'm in there, and I'm looking at the pantry, and I get to think to myself, hey, this is a good example. I'm sitting here, and I'm like, I should share this example, because what will happen? I'll get laughter. I'll get people talking about it. And what am I doing? I pop another couple of coffee beans in my, yeah, this is a great example of me not responding with genuine repentance to recognizing something's wrong. And I get to thinking, it's like, hmm, I should probably stop doing this. Because I'm actually, I, I, I've, I've declared this as something that's bad, and I'm even going to share this in the sermon, and I'm still eating. And I pop a couple more in my mouth while I'm still looking in the pantry. And I finally have to say, this is it. This is it. I am not even remote. I know it's wrong, but I'm not even remotely repentant. I'm making light of it. Now, God's grace is there in the midst of that. But what convicted me in that moment most was how much I was making light of it. Now, I still told it to funny effects. Hope you got a laugh. 
But we do that so often with our sins. We can think of, and that's why I shared this story, because we do this so often with these kind of more subtle sins. We, we love, and we can relate to those big stories of, of huge sin, of, 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 of you know, pornography, or of greediness, or this or that. Well, oftentimes we don't take those subtle sins quite as seriously. This is one of the problems with accountability groups. We can get in there and we can begin to name that, oh yeah, I did this. But we feel by just by the very fact of naming the sin that we did it, that we've actually repented. And in fact, all we've done is named it. Yeah, I did this. And we expect there to be change. Third thing. It's not making, it is not simply feeling bad for something you did. And this is another thing we often do. It's not simply feeling bad that we did something. And that's one of the things that Samuel confronts. Hey, that's great that you're lamenting, but if you're truly turning to God, it's more than just feeling remorse. Fourth, it's not making a contract with God or someone else to compensate for your sins. So in other words, it's not saying, well, you know what, I did do this, so let me make you a deal, God. Let me make you a deal, person I've wounded or offended. I did this to you, so why don't I do this for you, and then we'll make everything all right. Now, maybe God is calling you to do something, but that's not truly repentance. That's trying to find a way to buy your way out of trouble. Fifth, it's not simply accepting a punishment to get the person to stop being angry with you. So in other words, it's not saying, okay, I'll agree with you. I'll agree with my wife so that she'll stop yelling at me. I'll, stop, I'll agree with the pastor so that he stops yelling at me. What is that? That's manipulation, not repentance. Sixth, it's not a therapeutic exercise to unburden yourself. In other words, you're not just simply seeking a therapeutic release. That's ultimately selfish. And then seventh, it's not trying to find a magic incantation to sweep away your sin and its consequences. We do this all the time. It's not saying, okay, well, I've got this magic formula of repentance, and so I'm going to say these words. Now, there's two problems with that. One is... A lot of times we're not really sorry. This comes back to confessing sin without actually dealing with it. But the, here's the second problem with that. And this is, this can, I see this all the time as a pastor. When we turn repentance into nothing but a magic incantation, we never feel security because we wonder if we did it wrong or right. Was I sorry enough? Did I say the right words in my repentance? So what is repentance? What is true repentance? First, it is owning our sin. It is owning our sin. It is recognizing that what we have done, we did it. Yes, there may have, we live in a world that is filled with brokenness. And there may be all kinds of things that contributed to our sinful state. But ultimately, we sin. And we take that before God and we own it. Second thing, true repentance recognizes that it is against God, first and foremost. So in our repentance, yes, by God's grace, there'll be all kinds of horizontal effects between us and our other people. And there'll certainly be calls for us to repent to other people, our spouses, our loved ones, our coworkers, our neighbors, person at the bank. But first and foremost, it is a vertical relationship that we're dealing with between us and God. Thirdly, it is turning from our sins. Now, look, yes, when we're dealing with things like addictions, when we're dealing with deep-seated sins, this can be a long process that is difficult. And we need God's power in the midst of it. But ultimately, there's the desire from God to turn from our sins. Fourth, it is in turning to God. It's not just turning from our sins, but it is turning to God. We're not just apologizing to God, but we are moving by his spirit and grace towards him. As Old Testament professor Robert Chisholm says, repentance results in the exclusive worship of the one true God. 
It's not just turning away from sin, but turning to God. And then finally, it is ultimately trusting in God. It is ultimately trusting in God. Now, here's the glorious thing. In this pathway to peace through repentance, we can, it can be a place, we don't have to fear it being a place that leads us to an identity of shame because we can have confidence in a gracious God. We can have confidence in a gracious God. You see, we have the true intercessor, Jesus Christ, who laid down the perfect sacrifice for sin once and for all, and there is nothing by which we add to it. So we can have confidence that no matter what we go through, through Christ, our shame is removed. Now, we will be dealing with repentance all the rest of our life. That's just the fact of the matter. But here's the good news. Through Christ, as we experience his redemption, as we become to trust in the power of his grace, the magnitude of his mercy, which is far more than our sin, as bad and as black and as awful as our sin is, his mercy is greater and all-sufficient for us. And that takes our shame, our Ebenezer and our place of defeat into a place of ultimate worship. Yeah, you know what? I, I brought into my life this horrible shame of pornography. And it was sweeping and it was breaking me, it was breaking my relationships, it was tearing my family apart. It was an Ebenezer of defeat. But by God's grace, it's now a place of victory where God revealed his power to save me. You can say that for our greed, for our, our bickering, our bitterness, places of sin that have now become places of ultimate victory. And it becomes not from looking inside to ourselves, right? And that's one of the key. This isn't about trying to find a magic formula, but rather looking to the sufficiency of Christ, looking to him, not to ourselves, looking to him. 